Let me just introduce uh, what we're, what we're going to do for the rest of the hour. We've got 50 minutes here, and um, I kind of titled this Missions in the 21st Century. And um, everybody here is, is doing that. Uh, the, the four of these men are doing that. Uh, they've been doing it. They've committed their life to Christ and have been doing it for decades. And um, so I've kind of crafted some questions that I think will interest everybody uh, about that. And then if we get to the end, we'll open it up for Q&A. But before we begin... Um, I'm just going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you guys, maybe starting with Brad, to introduce yourselves, yeah? Okay. Father, thank you so much for uh, just an opportunity as the world around us uh, just continues to go and go and go, that we have this next hour to sit and quietly think about uh, uh, our lives and ways that we can serve you. You've given us a mission, and uh, uh, everybody who loves Christ, who trusts Christ, has been commissioned with it and and. Lord, I just ask that today um, uh, you, would, you would transfer wisdom to us, uh, that we would hear and have new ideas, new concepts about our lives, uh, so that we might live more faithfully to you. Uh, thank you for these men and their willingness to come and serve in their busy schedules, our student body like this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Brad, would you go ahead? Uh, okay, thanks. Intro. Uh, Brad Miller. Uh, I'm with the Navigators. That is not a boat club. Uh, I do ministry, college ministry in Colorado, at Colorado State University, also across the U.S. and in Haiti. My name is Tim Hall, and I'm a missionary with World Venture. We were, we were in Italy for um, 27 years as church planters and leadership developers, and now I am a recruiter for our mission, World Venture. I'm also... Tim, <clears throat> we hope that we're not intimidating with two of us. <laughs> Sorry. Um, wow. We've been with uh, Mission Aviation Fellowship. We started in Congo, Africa, back when it was called Zaire. Uh, raised three sons starting in Congo and work out of the headquarters of MEF, which is in far west Montana called Idaho. And, uh, <laughs> and we are home when we're here. This is our home church from 40 years ago. We left here to go to MAF. And my name is Scott Morningstar, and Sherry and I started uh, ministering with Native people with North American Indigenous Ministries in 1979, and still involved and on staff with them. We, we work with Native students at Montana State University, and also with an organization called Music Bruken, which is a uh, focused ministry in Austria. And uh, we're excited to be a part of what God's doing there. All right. Let me start, Brad, back with you. Um, first question, and uh, I think you might have to think back quite a few years here, but how did you easy, get... Easy. <laughs> All right. Your vocational calling. How, how, did you, how did that happen where you decided, yes, I want to be in, involved in full-time ministry? Yes, thanks. I want to just uh, point out, by the way, that he said that we are doing ministry in the 21st century. So I may look like I came from two or three back, but just so you know. Um, so I became a Christian in uh, 1970. I did not grow up in a Christian household, uh, so I knew nothing about the Bible. In fact, the uh, first time I ever read the Bible, I started in Genesis, and when I got to Exodus, I went out with the children of Israel. So I really didn't have any idea what I was doing. Uh, uh, so then once I became a Christian and was in the military, uh, a guy came along and discipled me, and in four months... I went from knowing nothing to knowing a lot of verses, being able to help others in the Christian life. And I was amazed 
at the change that God had made in my life. And so I thought, wow, this is, this is worth living for. At that point, four months in, I decided if God would let me do this, this is what I would do for a vocation. And it took 10 more years to get there, but God allowed me to do that. That's how I got into it. I went to Colorado State University on a basketball scholarship. Uh, that was in 1971 and uh, was, uh, was a non-Christian at the time. And through uh, First Baptist Church and the Navigators, <laughs> I'll, I, pay uh, I'll pay you later. <laughs> I came uh, to Jesus Christ and made him my personal savior. And then I went through the whole entire Navigator training. After uh, college, I went uh, with Athletes in Action, part of Campus Crusade, on their basketball team. And at that time, all the major prestigious tournaments around the world were played uh, through the United States. Somebody's laughing at somebody. <laughs> See that funny? <laughs> Anyway, so I became, um, our team became the United States representative for the United States in all the major tournaments. So we played in the World Cup games, we played in um, uh, Australia twice, Argentina, um, Paris, and England, all around the world. And, and as we played, we had USA on our jerseys. And um, I did not know at the time but each time we traveled with the United States and stayed in um, five-star hotels and, and had all the um, fancy lifestyle, I was taking short-term mission trips each and every time. And each and every time I was seeing the world and the needs of the world. And so I was gradually, by the Holy Spirit, brought in to a vocational ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ in missions just by doing my passion of basketball. And at the end, I came to the conclusion that if I was gonna be honest with myself, there was a much greater need overseas and much greater opportunity overseas than there was in the United States. And if I was gonna be honest with myself, I needed to at least knock on that door and see if God wanted me to go overseas. Okay, my, I guess I, I'm going to tie mine back to Navigators too, because my dad in World War II knew Lauren Sani and the founding of Navigators, and while he was in the service, he met another Christian man that told him about a mission in California that made records and needed technical help. So I actually grew up in Los Angeles with my home base, all my relatives in this valley here, but my dad uh, was electronics for gospel recordings that made uh, the high tech for the time was records. That's how we spread the gospel through the world, was converting the gospel onto a short message into languages that had nothing written in it. So I grew up in a mission home, seven kids, and my dad still had navigator verses, and I have them to this day from World War II. So that was the tie. But my background was in my dad's shop, playing with electronics. I went to Prairie Bible College up in uh, Alberta and uh, came back through Montana on my way down and uh, met, my, uh, met a, a girl that became my wife eventually after the Air Force. And um, I got drafted during the Vietnam War and joined the Air Force because I knew I wanted more electronics and I loved airplanes. 
So um, in the Air Force, I got my private license and was a top secret communications uh, technician. And while I was in Okinawa during Vietnam War, I felt like, can God use this? And um, I started communicating with uh, Wycliffe Bible translators because they had aviation and they need communications with the missionaries out in the jungle. So after the Air Force, I planned my future, but ended up here in Bozeman and working with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on the campus. Same time, uh, Brad was with Navigators and Mar Marty and Margaret Brown also supported with Crusade. A lot of us were here 40, 35 years ago working together with college kids. This is where we began. And then I felt like, did I have a technical side? Was I being frustrated because I wanted to do something technical for my background? And I actually approached the leaders of, of Grace, saying, I'm not sure what I should be doing. Should I be proceeding into the ministry, or should I proceed with the technical background flying? By that time, I had become a flight instructor out at Gallatin Field here. I uh, had all my licenses, and um, I was encouraged by the church to go ahead and proceed. What, what did the missions need as a pilot? And I needed a mechanic license, so I went to Moody Aviation in Tennessee, got my mechanic license, and came back here, worked another year, and then 35 years ago left for Mission Aviation Fellowship, have been with them since that time. Um, they found out I did electronics, asked if I would only do electronic repairs and supply radios and solar panels for missionaries out in the jungles. And um, I thought that was only going to be for two or three years, but 35 years later, I'm still doing it, and, and it's a big need. Amen. Um, my direction into vocational mission started actually before I was a Christian. Uh, where I was raised was very rural area of south central Pennsylvania and uh, used to spend a lot of time in the hills there uh, and finding a lot of uh, Native American artifacts, arrowheads and hand tools and things of that nature. And it was always an interest to me to think I lived in an area where there were hundreds of thousands of Native Americans at one time and then when I was born and grew up there there were none. So I didn't, but it was very romantic to me to think that I lived in that kind of a context. And when I came to know the Lord uh, as my own personal Savior in April 1973 and then consequently went off to college at Columbia International in South Carolina, uh, very missions-minded school that really helped students to understand what God was doing in the world. And it caused me to think, I never heard anybody talk about missions to native people of North America, nor did I ever hear a missionary who was a missionary in North America. And just by my kind of how I'm wired, it really caused me to be inquisitive. What's going on? Because this interest in Native people and this interest in missions just kind of met head on. Uh, and so I took it upon myself and I thought if this is an interest God is giving me, I need to find out about it. So I began to look for organizations, what's going on in Indian country, who's doing what in Native American, Native Canadian communities and found a few organizations that work there. So my first stepping onto a reservation in the summer of 1976 led to a decision to do full-time ministry with Native people, and that's what we've been doing uh, since then. Thank you, gentlemen. Scott, if, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with you here on this sure. next question. Uh, uh, what is the difference between a missionary uh, and a Christian who is not labeled a missionary? Any of my class want to answer that question for me? <laughs> Okay, uh, at, at the risk of offending anybody out here, uh, let me just 
make the statement and then just give a brief 30-second explanation of it. You all are missionaries. But we, we are missionaries. And let me explain what I mean by that. There is a difference to me between the great calling of all Christians to do evangelism, represent Christ in the world they find themselves in, the context they are. And for me, I've comfortably landed on that as missionary with a little m. I look at us as missionaries with a capital M. Not because it makes us greater than, but it is our vocational calling. This is what God has led us into for a vocation. So I could say the same thing. Stephen, you might be a heart surgeon with a little HS, but there are people in this world who are heart surgeons with capital HS, and that's where I'm going to go to to get like, the help I need for that. Uh, I do think all of us are responsible to meet out the mandate biblically for reaching the world for Christ, wherever we find ourselves. But there's no doubt that there is a difference between that and the vocational calling of being a missionary, however you want to define it. That's how I would explain that. Tim Dyke. I don't think I need to add anything to that. That's, that's well, thanks, excellent. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I would add, um, I think he's right on. Uh, the word uh, missionary uh, comes from apostle, which means one who is sent. And so I think those who are sent uh, either um, to uh, the Native American or overseas uh, would be a missionary. You hear often, we're all missionaries. And I think in reality, that's not quite correct. We're all evangelists. And we all have the responsibility uh, to do evangelism. In your context, you are an evangelist. If you are sent to um, Irian Jaya, then you're a missionary because you have a call specifically to go out to a specific field. While you're here, you do evangelism. But it's, it's more semantics than anything, but I think missionary is the idea of being sent. Brad, before you answer, let me, let me just kind of maybe give a nuance to the question. The, where it's coming from is this idea that missionaries, uh, it's sort of them, it's their work to kind of carry the gospel and to, and to do the work of an evangelist. And, and that idea, for me anyways, when I was little, uh, and not a Christian, but uh, I saw missionaries in that way. And then since taking classes with Scott at NBC, and I guess just understanding the word more deeply, I've come to see myself more in that role as well. But, but w what damage do you think that view uh, uh, has done to the church, and, and how, would you, how have you been correcting it when you've been discipling people? The only thing I'll add to that is that uh, the responsibility uh, is uh, yours as well as ours to reach the world. So uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20 uh, does not distinguish between the things we've distinguished here. I agree with all these comments. But you're as responsible to reach the world as I am. How are you going to do it? You can do it professionally. You can do it by making disciples who go. But you are as responsible as we are. Tim Dyke, if I can start with you, um, you said that you raised three boys, is that what you said? Three sons. Three sons in the Congo. 
Well, one, two of them were, one was born there, one we came with, yes. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, my, my question Lisa. is gonna be maybe for you guys, the three of you here on the end, how, how, starting with you, Tim, did you deal with raising a family in an indigenous uh, slash foreign culture? Um, they were so young when we were beginning in Africa that um, we were very impressed, and including when we came home, we tried to mix them with other cultures. When we came home to our headquarters, it was Spanish, and we intermingled them with, uh, with uh, classes that were bilingual at the time just to increase the culturization. Um, I think that we went out of our way to make sure that no matter what color or culture somebody was, they were our friend and we were no different. Now that's what we said, but one time when we came home from Africa and we were going down the streets of California and my little boy, four years old, saw a, a black person going down the street and he went, there's a bad man. What? I was completely shocked. You know, he'd been living in Africa. Why did he get that? Well, because when he was a little boy playing in the yard with a toy, a kid ran in the yard and stole his toy and ran away with it. And so he associated that with the kid that stole his toy with, well, maybe that person is, all, everybody of that color is bad. And we were shocked and we went, our, we, what we teach in our home is not necessarily what they gather from the culture around them. And we have to go out of our way to learn to love the people in other cultures. And that's really what part of missions is, is adapting to other people's culture and even getting that out of the back of your mind that you didn't even know that you had that feeling. So uh, I felt like that was part of our family is that we tried to have other cultures in our home. And just, we are all one people. All need the love of the Lord. Tim Hall, you didn't mention that, that you and your wife had children in, in Italy, but uh, did you raise a family there? We uh, took our boys, they were 10 and 6 when we arrived, and um, what, we, uh, what we were taught and what we, what we believed is if, if Janet and I are in the will of God going overseas um, to Italy, then our sons are in the will of God as well. And that um, whatever they encounter or confront, uh, God knows that and is shaping them. And most time, missionary kids do really well overseas, and they make the cultural adjustments, and they become TCK kids, which means um, they have uh, two or three cultures in their head, and they really uh, never know where home is, and maybe they never really feel comfortable in any one culture because they've had these different experiences. But you talk to most TCK kids, and they wouldn't trade their experience or the background that they've had. Some kids, it, it's not the way. It's, it's very difficult for them. But I'd say the majority do very, very well. But it's, it's a challenge. We took our kids. We were going to uh, put them in Italian schools. But we realized when we got there that at fifth grade in Italian schools, they already make a cut, and if they think that you are intelligent, they'll send you to the university track, 
And if they think you're more of a technical person, an electrician or a plumber or whatever, they'll send you to the technical track. Well, we had a fifth uh, grader that didn't know the language, so he had no chance of ever going to the university. So we did not put him in Italian schools for that reason. We were counseled not to. But they had a great experience. But I can remember our, our six-year-old, every time we took him to Italian soccer practice, for him to get some Italian, he would cry. And um, he's out there, and he needs to go to the bathroom, and he can't express to the coach that he needs to go to the bathroom. And the coach comes over to me, and he says, uh, what's your son upset about? Are you beating him at home? <laughs> and uh, we said, no, no. He needs to go to the bathroom. So the coach just takes him to the bush, and he, you know, he goes to the bathroom right on the bush there. And, and um, so when he turns seven, he says, um, I'm a big boy now, and I'm not going to cry anymore. And, uh, and he didn't. And it's, it's challenging for those little, little guys in a foreign culture. But you talk to him now, he wouldn't trade it for the, for the world. So yeah. Scott, what comes to your mind with difficulties in raising a family where you were? You know, I'm, I could be dead wrong about this, but I think you know, when my wife and I went to the field full time back in the in 79, 80, we were a fairly young married couple at the time, and we had a one-year-old daughter, and that was the only child we had. So my kids were actually born and raised on the mission field. And I think that was a great advantage to us as parents, because they didn't have the opportunity to kind of get rooted into a, a cultural dynamic and then uprooted to go to a new one. The only life they ever knew was reserve life, reservation life until we moved back into the United States. That's when we had, I think, parenting was much more of an issue then. Uh, when we transitioned back into the United States, because they were Canadian by birth, and they were dual because of our birth, but they didn't know anything of American history. They didn't live in white communities till we moved back into the United States. So that was a real transition for them. So advantageously, it was really an advantage to go with no children or a one-year-old and no other kids, and then have them born and raised there until they were in their early teens. And so my parenting, whatever level of parenting skills I did have, honestly didn't kick in to make me think I have to do this differently until we moved back into the States. That's when it had became a challenge. Then I would say that's when the same challenges kicked in. It was kind of almost in reverse at that point. So. And Brad, I didn't mean to leave you out of that question, but did you have any, anything come to your mind no, okay. Let me start then with you, if that's all right, Brad. Um, what, is, what is one thing that you wish that somebody had told you when you were going into vocational ministry? Uh, I was told, but that I would die a thousand deaths, I didn't understand. I don't think I do either now. Means it's a big cat. So the, uh, the ability to say no to self has been harder than I ever imagined to be in being married, in raising kids, in giving my life to people. I'm much more selfish than I ever imagined I would be and still am. How about you, Tim? Well, I would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there would be two things uh, that I would say. One is learn all the langu language that you can uh, in the States before you go. 
we were taught that you're never going to learn the language correctly if you start in the states, and you're going to get the right pronunciation when you when you get overseas to Italy. I think that's probably a bunch of baloney. Um, learn all you can because whatever you learn and know, then you'll be able to use when you're in the foreign culture, and that gives you a step up. If you go cold turkey like we did, then it's just much more hard. It's harder to, to learn. You didn't learn anything, Tim, before you went? Not too much. So I pizza, would say... Pizza, we, well, pasta, I knew pizza sorry, and spaghetti yeah. and all that stuff, but th that's not going to get you very far. But um, it was kind of back then the idea that if you're going to be a purist, you learn it in the culture. And uh, I think that that was a mistake. And then the second thing is that ministry is hard. And uh, ministry is harder overseas because you have that language and cultural uh, boundary uh, and divide that you don't know about. And so in Italy, um, a lot of their communication is indirect culture and indirect communication. And that takes a long time to learn. And, um, and there's those other cultural things that you need to learn. Uh, in Italy, it's more of an animistic viewpoint of life, where in the States, it's materialistic. And so those type of things to learn you know, take time and adjustments. How about you, Tim? Well, first, Brad, that's that's really good. I completely agree. I, I find selfishness in our lives. Just we're humans. We're they're there. It's that's always there. This really sat on my mind when I when I heard the question from, and I thought that's that's a really good question because I've thought of it many times over the years. I've narrowed it down to three things. <laughs> First is, um, if you're a couple, it's important that both of you feel the call. Not, not just one of you went and I'm married to him or I'm married to her, so I'm going with him. Um, it's very important that you pray together. Um, I've heard many stories of people saying, I've been praying about this and finally asked my wife, and she says, I've been praying about that too, you know. But sometimes it's kind of like, I don't think so. So I've met so many families where one or the other were interested in missions, but who you chose to marry, who you choose to marry made the difference, and most times you don't go. So there is a wonderful advantage to going overseas. If you didn't find the right mate, you went overseas anyway, you felt the Lord's call, and you met somebody there that was already called, was already there. We think those marriages are made in heaven. We love people that have uh, felt individually and then together called to the mission field. So that's the first thing. Both of you, if there's, if there's a family, both of you need to feel the call. Um, secondly, now I've got to remember what the second one was. The third one was people. Um, I can't believe how many times um, people were interruptions to my life, especially overseas. I felt like I had a job to do. It may be technical. It may be what my mission was that day. It might even be teaching a class. And somebody interrupted me. And I didn't realize until looking back later that those interruptions were the best ministry of all. Those people that I just happened to meet or they saw me and they just asked a question or interrupted me, uh, asked me, they were the neediest of all. And when I came back, I said, well, I did this work for MAF. It was 
helping missionaries out in the jungle, but what really meant the most for me is this friendship I developed with this little kid and or or anybody that just came into your life, even your houseworker. I mean, it's amazing the people who have come into your life just impromptu. Um, I'll think of the third after you. Okay, fine. <laughs> you know, I saw this question and it immediately came to my mind one thing in particular because it was the one thing that after my wife and I got to the field, I actually wrote a letter to one of my professors in school and said, why didn't you teach me this? Why didn't you tell me this? And maybe it's because I was very specific, ethnically focused with native people of North America. That is the level of spiritual warfare that we had to deal with. It was vicious, it was extreme, and uh, not the basic topic of conversation in your typical Bible college classroom, uh, which is why I really asked Gail a number of years ago that we need to add that to the curriculum here, at the very least for some basic principles. But that was the one thing that I challenged my professors on. Why didn't you tell me this? Okay, so my third point that I just thought of when it actually went along with you, I'd, I'd categorize it with the word expectations. Without knowing it, we all have expectations of what it's going to be like to live overseas. And I remember my uh, manager for Africa area said he finally decided that our, our mission's responsibility before we sent families overseas was to lower their expectations because they had certain expectation of what life was going to be like, especially those of us from North America. We expect that we're going to make a North American life in the middle of another third world city or the jungle. We just, we're, we expect that. That's our life. That's what we grew up with. We expect to have that. Don't expect to have that. Life is going to be tough. You're not going to have family around. You're not going to have electricity. You may not have water every day. You're going to have be hot and tired and humid. It's going to be hard to live in third world countries. Um, so if you don't expect to have the electricity to work every day, then you're not disappointed when it doesn't work every day. I just use that as an illustration. But lower, ex we all have expectations of what it's going to be like. Some of those came from movies of missionaries that, or books we read. Um, we just got to expect the Lord to work. That's what we need to expect. But don't expect to have the lifestyle that you have here. Tim, let me begin uh, with you, Tim Hall, on this one. And, and this may be, be one of the most relevant questions uh, to students uh, right now where they're at. What was, what was the greatest challenge? I mean, you, you've already talked about language, culture, raising children. You're going to a new place. It's new difficulties arise. What was the greatest challenge among all of that to your maintaining your own spiritual well-being? Well, I think that's the most important question. Um, if you can maintain your spiritual well-being in ministry here or in ministry overseas, then you will stay longer on the field. And if your uh, spiritual well-being suffers, then uh, problems will come up and it will make you harder for you to stay. So I think um, the most important thing uh, that you can do, and uh, we were... Uh, responsible for five countries when we were overseas, uh, as well as uh, living in Italy. So we went to five countries, Turkey, Lithuania, Slovenia, uh, Czech Republic, and um, I'm missing one. Anyway, we went to five of those, and every time I was with the workers in those countries, I would say one thing, 
your most important task, the most important thing you can do is to stay vibrant. Whatever it takes for you to maintain your relationship and grow deeper in love with God, that's more important than anything else you can do. So if you need to take a retreat, you need to rearrange your schedule, you need to develop a certain type of um, lifestyle spiritually that fits you, whatever you need to do, do it. Stay as vibrant as you can. Figure it out for you. You know, the NAVs are great, but they taught us one method. But I'm convinced now that every Christian has their own method of their relationship of falling in love with God. And my relationship may be different than yours. You may be intellectual and you like to sit at your desk. I like to take a walk out in the country and um, have kind of a nature experience for me. And that really works well for me. So whatever it takes, find your spiritual rhythm and uh, really develop it and make that the most important thing uh, because it is. It's, it's the most important thing for your family, most important thing for your ministry, most important thing for your supporters back home is your spiritual vibrancy. It's not what you know, but it's how much you love God, which is the most important thing. Brad, how did you maintain it? Can anybody in here quote us Matthew 6.33? But seek ye first the kingdom of God. No, not you. <laughs> just I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Thank you. It's okay if you've done it, but I would like them to do it. <laughs> Ditto. Ditto. Scott? I would definitely agree with what's been said there. Uh, the other one thing I might add, because I think you couched this, what was the most challenging in, in this whole thing. Uh, one of the most challenging things is, for me, I can't speak for these brothers here. Sometimes I could, but this time I can't. But for me, when you're giving out, giving out, ministering, ministering, out, 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 tendencies for the defenses in your own life to, to, to lessen, like the shields go down. So to be keenly aware of your sinful tendencies and be willing to fight like crazy with Scripture to battle your own sin. Tim? Um, that's a very good question, and I think we need to answer it every moment of our lives, no matter where we are. I would say the difficulty that we faced is very similar to what you may face here in school. You're surrounded by Christians. You have devotional time set aside. You have chapel. You have church. You have evening services. I mean, it's kind of like you're doing spiritual things around other missionaries a lot of your time. And when you come down to your own personal time, oh, I forgot, I better read. And so. You, 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 in the back of your mind, everything I'm doing is spiritual, so I'm okay. And after that goes on for a while, your, your own devotional time, your personal time with the Lord just disappears. You know, it just disappears because without thinking, you felt like you were being spiritual because you did everything by rote. You just kept doing it. Um, I finally had to come to the spot where I needed to pick a verse, and I don't do it every day, but I do it as often as I can every, every week. When I'm reading something, I must grab something out of that passage that I don't quite understand, or it was like a slap in the face from the Lord saying, ooh, that hurts. 
So I think of that, it may be just a phrase, but I, that stays with me for that day or for the following days, saying, okay, what does this mean? And wow, the Lord works that out in my life. So that's how I stay alive is I look for the Lord to bring his scripture alive in my life every day. Brad, let me just uh, ask you a follow-up there. You mentioned seek first the kingdom of God. When, that, when you read that, and now you quoting that and ask us to think about that, what, what does that look like in your life? Uh, first thing each day, uh, first thing uh, in relationships and out uh, when I'm out on the campus. So as I go about my day, uh, first thing is uh, focus on him, uh, pray, connect with him. Obviously, in a quiet time or devotional time or Bible study time, I can actually get in the word. But one of the reasons I like to memorize scripture, uh, in fact, on the way up here, I, I'm working my way through Ephesians, so I did the first three chapters on the way up here. I, I'm reviewing them because I already had them. Uh, but because I have scripture in my mind, I can meditate on that and pray through that wherever I am at any point. So loving God's word and know it well. Tim, as well, follow-up for you. You mentioned, you know, be be vibrant. Do it, what you need to do to make your relationship with God vibrant. And you mentioned, uh, you know, going on a walk. And, and, and during that time, just, so that, just to give you an opportunity to, to clarify on that as well, what does that, I mean, what does that mean? You go on a walk and that, and that helps you maintain a vibrancy in your relationship with the Lord. You know, that could be interpreted in, in a few different ways. But what, what's going through your mind when you say that? that that's how you maintain it. Well, that's one way. One way. Sir. And uh, there's several ways. But I think the first thing for me is um, it takes me a while to disengage. So I need to disengage from the world. And I find that just um, uh, the first part of my walk, um, I'm able to, to kind of uh, throw off my shoulders uh, the world, the worries of the world, the preoccupations of the world. And then I enter into a period of worship. And I think worship um, is a real key to devotion. Um, I think we first need to fill ourselves with the love of God, understand just how much he loves us, and worship him for our relationship with him. We've been bought out of the domain of darkness. We've been transferred in the kingdom of his beloved son. And so I meditate on that and think about uh, just how glorious that is. And um, as I worship and think about him, then, then after that, I'm able to bring my prayer requests to him and, um, and request certain things that I'm concerned about during the day. But I find that if I really concentrate on worship and maintain my vibrancy in that specific area, that it helps me uh, with the rest of my time with the Lord. And then I have times of reading the scripture um, uh, on my own. I'm trying to read through Ezekiel right now. I find that it's so difficult for me that I will do that and, and try to get a handle on Ezekiel because it's, uh, it's, it's something that I don't feel like I have a handle on too well. But then I usually uh, spend most of my time in the Psalms, Proverbs, and the New Testament. And then, then, then I'll go back to, to some of those Old Testament books that are harder. But I don't stay in those Old Testament books because they can, they can get me dry. So yeah, those are some things. 
I, I had another question uh, about how missions have changed over the last 50 years. But what I'd maybe like to do is just see if there's anybody right now that, as these guys have been talking or all of the, the decades of experience up here, is there anything that's on your heart that you'd like to ask? And when you do, I'll bring the microphone to you so we can have it recorded. Yeah, Ryan. I guess I'm curious. I've heard different people talking, and I think um, Tim Dyke, you and I mentioned this a little bit on Sunday even, but the difference in younger people today going to the field maybe with a short-term view in mind, this isn't my life, but maybe a period of my life, maybe a couple of years or a few years, but they don't look at that necessarily as a, a lifelong kind of commitment. And I'm just interested if you guys would comment on that sense of calling. And I'm thinking especially as you talk to this group of students here, um, what would you encourage in them um, as some of them may be going, is this something that God is calling me to or not? Um, how do you discern that and what kind of commitment should should flow out of that. Tim Dyke, if you wanted to start there. Well, I'll start because we did talk about that because you look at the four of us, we've committed our lives to this. Uh, you know, my, my entire career has been with, with missions and with getting the gospel out there. Um, and I'm, I can't consciously say that when I joined the mission that I knew that it was going to be a lifetime. But at some point, especially in aviation, I'm not going to be employable in aviation unless I stopped in my 40s, at, in minimum or 30s, and went with airlines or something like that. So I had to consciously make a, a decision at some point in my life that I was going to stay with this. And so what Ryan was saying and we were talking about was that's our generation. We think in terms of career, whereas when we find the new generation coming up, it's kind of like, well, I feel the Lord calling me to this. And for a year or two, you do what that vision was, and then you look for what else is, is next. It might be a completely different country, a different ministry, or a job, or a family. It's not got the same, and I, I don't even know where that came from, why we think of, of a, a ministry for our lifetime, and most of the new generation think of something, I'll try that for uh, next year. And I don't know how to answer the question. We love the commitment for whatever time the Lord has called you. We, we would love to see people commit their lives to a ministry, but we also recognize that God can take you from one step to another, and each one of us have had several steps that have brought us to what we're doing but in the end, we made a decision that we're going to commit our lives to this. Go ahead, Scott. Uh, you've heard me say this, but it's worth saying it in this forum. That is, I am an advocate of you know, varying cultural context and adapting to whatever that, what, how that might play out. And there's no doubt that your generation, you young folks that are in here now, definitely have a different mindset regarding almost anything. And it is more short-term, instant, than long-term. Now, having said that, there's, I am an advocate of long-term vocational 
missions. I will always be, and there's one reason I, I, I say that, and that is this, because I've been in ministry enough to know, and I worked with the people long enough to know, that it's the long-term relationship building over the long haul that makes a real impact for uh, credibility, viability, trust relationships. And that's hard to do, like six months, one year, and extracting and, and around here and that. So if I could make a case for long-term vocational ministries as a good way to really go, as opposed to the short-term kind of just in and out, in and out, in and out, change, 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 change. It's because of that. It's because of the relationship that builds up over time that gives you opportunity to see ministry develop over time. And uh, that's my opinion about that. Uh, but I think that's hard for you as, as a younger generation, millennials, whatever you call yourselves these days, because you, you're, you're so focused and passionate for a time about this and you, you accomplish something, then you move on and that and that. Great stuff, God can use you there, that's great. But to consider over the long haul, how will that look? What kind of an impact could I have? Lord tarries, grants you life. Maybe you have 40, 50 years ahead of you. And boy, there's a community that may benefit from being willing to be buried in that community. You know, if you uh, went to Ireland and you go there for three or four years, they would call you a blow-in because you blow in and then you blow out. Um, uh, it's um, you have a you have a mindset in your culture, and it's no it's nobody's fault, but you have an instant society and an instant culture. So I get people on the phone, and they go, "I want to go to Turkey, and I want to do church planting," and I go, "That's super. How long do you want to do that for? Two weeks." <laughs> and um, then I say, you know really, you're not going to be able to do that in two weeks. Um, it's going to take the rest of your life. Uh, because, uh, because to learn the language um, usually takes about 10 years for you to learn the language to the point that you can be uh, competent in the variety of uh, genres that there are in a language. Like if you go to an emergency room, uh, if you go to emergency room after one year, you're, you're not going to understand the medical terms. Or if you go to a basketball court, you're not going to understand the basketball terms. Uh, but if you're there for 10 years, you're going to understand most of these things. And you're really not going to have an impact on the lives of the people if you're there just for a short term. Because they realize, well, he's going to come in and then he's going to go. So really, for uh, missions, if we're going to make an impact for missions, uh, for God's eternity, it has to be uh, a long-term commitment, 20, 30 years. I mean, that's, that's, just the way, that's just the way it is. I don't agree with the idea of a calling in this case because the scriptures don't teach that. As a matter of fact, you have the same command that I have that was given to Peter. How do you want to do it? And I find that the scriptures give in context that you make that decision in counsel with God and the church of God, the community of your church that you're involved with. They will help you make that decision. But it's a command. I don't care what else you do in life. It's a command. How are you going to do it? That's great. I think we've got time for another question. Yeah, great. 
right. Coming from a missionary mindset, like what would be the flaws of the American church right now? The flaws of the American church. I would say the American church is most like the Corinthian church. Fleshly, not spiritual. Scott, you look satisfied with that answer. That's a good answer. It really is. Yeah. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> Another question? Sorry, I'll do one more follow-up because I just think it's pertinent to these students, but uh, having heard that a long-term commitment is a really good thing if there's a field in that way, um, what would you say is there value for these guys in doing something short-term? Scott was already looking at me, making eye contact. Um, talk to them about why they ought to maybe experience culture around the world and different things. I personally would say real quick that it was my short-term experience in the summer of 1976 is really what settled the issue uh, for me to make a vocational decision for missions. And so it, it's good for that. Now I'm hesitant to say, because they've, heard me, they've heard, heard me say this, sometimes missions is the only vocation where many people will say, I think I'll go on a short-term missions to see if I like it. You don't hear heart surgeons saying that, lawyers don't say it, teachers, some maybe they do. But it's like, I'll see if I like it. Well, if that's your reason for doing it, I guarantee you, number one, you're not going to like it on any given day, so don't go. But if that's your criteria for making a vocational decision, I'm not sure that's a wise one, but there's validity in the experience, uh, ministry fit, gifting fit, these kind of things. I think there's validity in short-term opportunities as long as they are actual short-term mission opportunities and not something that's called a mission trip. Another topic altogether. <laughs> Tim Hall, anything to add to that? Short-term missions, value in it? Well, I think there's great value for you as students. Um, you need to have those experiences, so I think it's great to go out overseas and then um, allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart as you're there. Ask him questions such as, is this something you'd like me to do long-term? Uh, are you changing my, my uh, vocation? and be open to that. And we see today that uh, students have to go on three, four, five short-term trips before they'll make a commitment to uh, go something longer. And if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Be open to doing that. Um, I agree with my brother here. I think if you're going first, it's good to go in a team. Uh, but when you go in a team, that's, that's kind of like a group vacation. And, and you, you go and you see the high spots and you have a lot of fun and you're with your friends, but, but you really didn't accomplish anything in terms of leaning into the, uh, the difficulties of a foreign culture. So then I think your second trip should be by yourself in an area of your passion. So if you're passionate about um, uh, aeronautics, you know, go and see a MAF um, um, mission work in their context and go by yourself and be involved. Or if you're passionate about farming or whatever, go to a specific group and get involved in farming and, um, and lean into that call. Um, I think that would be important. Yeah. 
Gentlemen, thank you guys so much for joining us and for blessing us like this. Um, in a second, Scott, I'm going to ask you to pray and close us out. But uh, as I, I can't help but think, look at these guys and then look at us, 60 or so, and just how much potential there is. Amen. You know, just think of, 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 and I'm not saying there's only potential in vocational ministry, but just think of what we could do. You know, that all of the men that Brad Miller has discipled, all of the, all of the Italians that were ministered to through through Scott and his wife, or through Tim and his wife, and, and, and so on and so forth. People in North American res reservations that are, are, will be in heaven because of Scott Morningstar. I love thinking about that. There's just so much potential. Um, and again, Scott, I know you take me to task because of God working through Scott Morningstar. Uh, and, and, but anyways... Um, Anyways, uh, yeah, so I hope that, that this has been a good time, that, that, that we're beginning to think uh, biblically about our lives as the semester rolls on. And um, let me just ask, uh, or not ask, but remind everybody, if you want to continue having conversations, all four of these guys and others are going to be down in the fireside room for the next hour. If you're a mission student or Kayla Williams, you can have lunch on me, uh, on Leota, really, on the school. Um, and uh, and if, if anybody else is interested, come down anyways, and I'll, I'll give you, there, there'll be a few other sandwiches and things, and, and you can hang out with us and continue to discuss. So I hope that, 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 that we, uh, we'll see you down there in the fireside. Can I add one more comment? Yeah, because Tim, Tim's comment struck something with me. is it, It's so important at your age to find what you're passionate about because when you find what you're passionate about and then see that the Lord needs that, and that's been my experience around the world, is that God uses everything of your background, as bad or as good or as technical or as non-technical, God uses you. <clears throat> but there's another stage before that happens, and that's the stage where you look at what you're passionate and what you're talented at, and you give it up. You say, Lord, what do you need? I'm willing to do what you need. And so uh, I'm th sure these guys would say the same thing. We want people who are willing to be used by the Lord where the need is and have given up what they think their talent is mm -hmm. in order to just serve whatever the Lord calls to. Then when you get back, you look at, wow, God used every aspect of my training, every aspect of my experience. I never knew I was going to get a chance to do that again. And the Lord will use your talents that he's given to you, but you've got to be willing to be used wherever he needs you. Amen. Thanks, Tim. Scott, will you close us? Sure. Father, it's been a pleasure to sit with these brothers and co-workers in the gospel on this stage, and yet I look out here and see these young faces and realize I'm privileged to be a part of their lives as well. And to know that we all are co-workers in the, for the cause of Christ in this world, and so if something that has been said here this morning resonates or sticks in a heart, would you help these young ones to fan that flame and to just pursue it, to ask questions, to educate themselves, most of all to seek your face in response to what is your answer to this for them. Uh, thank you for our time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.